Welcome to the 10th episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. To begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black. The cobble street silent and the hunched quarters and rabbit's wood limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow black, fishing boat bobbing sea. The houses are blind as moles, though moles see fine tonight in the snouting velvet dingles, or blind as Captain Cat there in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock, the shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Hush, the babies are sleeping, the farmers, the fishers, the tradesmen and pensioners, cobbler, schoolteacher, postman and publican, the undertaker and the fancy woman, drunkard, dressmaker, preacher, policeman, the web-foot cocklewomen and the tidy wives. Young girls lie bedded soft, or glide in their dreams with rings and trousseau, bridesmaided by glowworms down the aisles of the organ-playing wood. The boys are dreaming wicked, or of the bucking ranches of the night and the jolly rogered sea. And the anthracite statues of the horses sleep in the fields and the cows in the byres, and the dogs in the wet-nosed yards, and the cats nap in the slant corners, or lope sly, streaking and needling on the one cloud of the roofs. You can hear the dew falling, and the hushed town breathing. Only your eyes are unclosed to see the black and folded town fast and slow asleep and you alone can hear the invisible star fall the darkest before dawn minutely dew-grazed stir of the black dab-filled sea where the Arethusa, the curlew and the skylark zanzibar rhiannon the rover and the cormorant and the star of Wales tilt and ride. Listen, it is night, moving in the streets, the processional salt-slow musical wind in Coronation Street and Cockle Row. It is the grass growing on Clarigub Hill. Dewfall, starfall, the sleep of birds in milk wood. Listen, it is night in the chill, squat chapel, hymning in bonnet and brooch and bombazine black, butterfly choker and bootlace bow, coughing like nanny goats, sucking mintos, forty winking hallelujahs, night in the four ale, quiet as a domino, in Ocky Milkman's loft like a mouse with gloves. In dye bread's bakery flying like black flour. 
It is tonight in Donkey Street, trotting silent with seaweed on its hooves, along the cockled cobbles, past curtain, fern pot, text and trinket, harmonian, holy dresser, watercolours done by hand, china dog and rosy tin tea caddy. It is night, neddying among the snuggeries of babies. Look, it is night, dumbly, royally winding through the coronation cherry trees, going through the graveyard of Bethesda with winds gloved and folded and dew-doffed, tumbling by the sailors' arms. Time passes. Listen. Time passes. Come closer now. Only you can hear the houses sleeping in the streets in the slow, deep, salt and silent black-bandaged night. Only you can see in the blinded bedrooms the combs and petticoats over the chairs, the jugs and basins, the glasses of teeth. Thou shalt not on the wall and the yellowing dicky bird watching pictures of the dead. Only you can hear and see, behind the eyes of the sleepers, the movements and countries and mazes and colours and dismays and rainbows and tunes and wishes and flight and fall and despairs and big seas of their dreams. From where you are, you can hear their dreams. From where you are, you can hear their dreams. Under Milk Wood, Dylan Thomas's play for voices, one of the last things he wrote. In this podcast, I want to explore Dylan Thomas um, in relation to creativity, anxiety, um, the whole interplay between um, how we look at the world what we see and notice, how we articulate what we see and notice, and and how we cope with the world that we live in, how we cope with our inner world, and and to gain some insight from looking at this unusual poet um, about the nature of what we're doing here on this planet. Um, Dylan Thomas is a poet that's probably not highly in vogue at the moment, I wouldn't have said. Um, you don't hear him a lot. Around 2014, there was a flurry of activity about Dylan because um, it was the 100th anniversary of his birth and the BBC did a great uh, film with Tom Hollander playing Dylan. Um filmed in Larne, where Dylan spent a lot of his life. And um, they also did uh, a TV version of Under Milk Wood with the readers scattered around the globe uh, in Dylan Thomas-type sites. So some were in Larne, some were in Swansea, some in London. Uh, Tom Jones was in London. And uh, some in New York at the White Horse Pub 
where he would drink. Um, and and they were all connected by computers and they were all following the text and reading. And they were all Welsh. Um, people like Jonathan Price, Sean Phillips, um, Matthew Rees, uh, and a lot of young Welsh actors too. And, as I say, people like Tom Jones. And why Dylan Thomas, you are probably thinking, he's, he's rattled on about St Francis, he's gone on and on about Vincent van Gogh, and here we've got another bloke, um, another, another oddity, um, and that's probably why. Uh, he's a bit of an oddity. He doesn't quite fit... Uh, in a lot of ways. He was the first um, celebrity poet in some ways. He had a good voice on the radio. If you listen to the recordings now, you probably think, God, is he even Welsh? His dad had sent him for elocution lessons, but he's got a Welsh intonation. He's got a way of singing his poetry uh, and was very popular on the radio. Um, I suspect, hence the play for voices that he wrote. I discovered Dylan Thomas when I was about 15, 16. So I was pretty useless at school. Um, my dad died when I was 11. And and I think I just, we the 11 plus had just stopped being conducted uh, just before uh, I came up to that point of 11. So you went to a comprehensive school and you weren't really streamed in terms of ability until three years in. And I just scraped into... The, there were two categories. There was those who did the GCE, which is what GCSEs now are, and then there were those who did CSEs. Uh, the GCE people, some of whom would go on to do A-levels and go to university... The CSE people tended to go on and do apprenticeships. Bear in mind, I come from Sheffield. So uh, at, at that time, uh, in the early 70s, there was still work in the steelworks. Um, so, and you were streamed at that point, and then on you went with, with whatever direction you were going to go in. I scraped into the GCE pool, but I wasn't really interested. And my mum, God bless her, I think was so busy dealing with the death of my father and, well, not grieving. Uh, she was placed on tranquilizers, things like Valium and Librium. So she was a, a little bit out of it. And she got very depressed, repressed grief, I think. So when I watch parents and, and, and watch what we've done with our kids... You know, trying to help them with their homework, encouraging them, what do you want to be in your life? My mum wasn't, it's not that she didn't want to, she wasn't in a fit state to do that. And there wasn't really anybody else around who who could do that for me. So I just didn't really see the point of education. It seemed like a necessary evil to get through, to come home and read the books I wanted to read or play with my mates, play football, um, uh, watch TV, whatever. And um, 
I, I, I didn't have any of that, oh, what are you going to do with your life? I, and when people ask me, I, I, it's not that I made things up, but I remember saying to my mum, oh, I'm interested in farming. God knows why I said that, because I had no perception of farming. Um, and the careers officer, I remember him telling me I needed to do GCEs in uh, biology and, and physics and chemistry, which were the subjects that I was utterly useless at. Um, so I stumbled into my fourth and fifth years of secondary school when you started to do these things seriously. Um, and the only subject that I found in any way captivating was English literature we had a great teacher called mr waller and mr waller one of the 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 poets on the curriculum was dylan thomas and i can remember him reading um dylan's poetry to us there were certain set texts i'm just looking for um for, for one of them now because um, I've got the collected works which has got loads and loads and loads ah here we are, Fern Hill Fern Hill page 177 this is how it starts now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green. The night above the dingle starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes. And honoured among wagons, I was prince of the apple towns. And once below a time, I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. Wow. I'd never heard anybody talk like that before. I had very little idea what it was about. I We were told Fernhill was a farm that Dylan Thomas would visit when he was a younger boy and that somehow it was important to him as a place in his memory. But the night above the Dingle's story, Time let me hail and climb golden in the heydays of his eyes, and honoured among wagons I was prince of the apple towns. Wow, what on earth was that all about? And it goes on for one, two, three, four, five, six, six stanzas, all in a very regular pattern on the page. And actually I came to find out regular syllable patterns that he'd had to really think through. And it ends, nothing I cared in the lamb-white days that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand, in the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy, in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea.
time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. This was biblical. Um, I grew up with no church background. Uh, we were nominally Church of England, but I never really went. But there was something in that language that I thought, this is, you know, this is the echo of something uh, uh, existential. I wouldn't have used that word then. Um, something that, that goes to the very core of what life's about. And I got that that yearning. I, I, there was a big before and after in my life. And, and in a previous podcast, Patrick and I talked about what childhood loss does to you. There is this before and after. There's there's a there's an expulsion from Eden that goes on in you if you lose someone close to you when you're young. Because you know that life can change in a heartbeat and 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 you yearn for that time when you didn't know that. And and this was the a poem of yearning. It was all about holidays, of which I'd had wonderful ones with my mum and dad. We used to either go, or sometimes both in the same year, either to to Hythe uh, on the Solent near Southampton, where my auntie Doll lived. She wasn't a proper auntie, but in those days she called any kind of friends of the family's uncle and auntie. So auntie Doll lived uh, on the Solent, looking over where all the big liners would come in. And we used to go to this lovely place called Leap Beach. Um, and they were idyllic holidays. My mum and dad were good at holidays. And, you know, we'd make up sandwiches. My dad loved listening to the test match. We'd go to the beach. He'd do the crossword and sit and listen to the test match. I'd swim in the sea and my mum would knit. We'd have sandwiches. We'd play football. It was just great. Or we would go up to Northumberland, where my dad came from. Ashington, uh, his, his sister lived in Bedlington. Ashington was considered the biggest pit village in the world at one point. And um, yeah, my dad was a Geordie and a lot of his his, his uh, family were all up there. So we'd go and stay with Auntie Gladys. Um, she had this lovely uh, Labrador called Rusty and um, a coal fire, outdoor toilet, bloody freezing even in the win uh, in the summer. Um, but these were great holidays and something in that poem reminded me of those holidays oh as I was young and easy and uh, and I got it I, the language also was mesmeric I've just been to see Hamilton the uh, the, the, the musical and um, you know who'd have thought that reading a 900 page book biography of Alexander Hamilton, the, one of the founding fathers of the United States, would would spur Linwell Manuel Miranda to come up with a hip-hop rap musical. But it did. And it's it's brilliant. I've, I've, I've rarely seen anything more exciting. Reminds me of when um, Jesus Christ Superstar came out, that combination of rock music and the Bible which no one had ever thought of really before. I know they'd done Joseph, but nothing like Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, it's a bit like that. But what's really brilliant about it, and and 
my kids laugh at me because I've suddenly, you know, my son is really into the 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 the, the, the film straight out of Compton about about rap, um, and we watched a program called The Defiant Ones on Netflix, which is all about the the, the rise of Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and all this kind of stuff. But the poetry of hip hop and rap is is uh, Dylan Thomas and that piece I read from Under Milk Wood. It's performance poetry. It's it's to be heard, and and it got me, and 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 thankfully. So I want to read a piece that I've written myself. It's called "Visits to Larne at Fifteen and Fifty. So Larne is on the Gower Coast in South Wales, um, and it's Dylan Thomas kind of ended up there. You'd almost say he got washed up there. It's on an estuary of a river. And he ended up in this, uh, this renting this little house. He called it his sea shaken house on a breakneck of rocks, and it's um, it's it's overlooking this beautiful estuary and and a place called Sir John's Hill, and um, above it on the path, there's, there's a little lot of steps that go down to it, and at the top of those steps is a little garret, a little like a garage, and he turned it into a writing shed. Um, it's got his desk in it, and it's been preserved. So he died, when did he die? Um, uh, what would you do without Wikipedia? Uh, 9th of November, 1953. And that room has been left pretty much as it was th- that day. It's got his jacket hanging over the chair. It's got... Uh, sheets of paper that he was writing and he made long lists of words um to to slot into his rhyme schemes and into his syllabic uh, metrical systems so there was no th- online thesaurus in those days and he would just write lists and lists of words and you could see them and he liked boiled sweets so there's loads of boiled sweets and there's a few bottles of beer and apparently his kind of routine in a day would be to wake up go up to the pub called the Browns Hotel, meet his dad, who'd retired as a school teacher by then. They'd do the crossword, a couple of pints for breakfast, come back home, and then Catelyn, his wife, uh, and his daughter, Eromwi, would, would march him up to this writing shed and lock him in, hoping that he would produce some poetry, which was their only real source of income. So locked in there, they'd know when he was writing and when he wasn't. If he was writing, you could hear him because he, he he was a performance poet. He knew that these lines had to sound right. The cadence and the music within the lyricism of his poetry had to flow through him. If he was silent, he was probably sucking boiled sweets and reading Agatha Christie novels, which he liked. I went to Lon when I was 15, when I was in the middle of this O-level GCSE period, GCE period. And we'd gone, my mum by that time had got a new man called Morris Westerman. And uh, he, we all decided to go down to Mountie Dolls, who had now moved to Ferryside in Carmarthenshire. And got a little cottage down there, so... She'd invited us down, 
my mum's new boyfriend, we all drove down there in his great big Triumph Stag, big purple car that my mum couldn't drive, and then he took ill. He had, I, he, he died of it in the end, but he had some kind of blood disorder. And um, we were stuck. We couldn't get home. And we were there for five and a half weeks of the six-week summer holiday. And I was bored, brainless. I read the Thomas Covenant Unbeliever uh, science fiction fantasy series, and they're thousands of pages long, each book. I read them all. And my mum and auntie were aware that I was getting pretty fed up as a 15-and-a-half-year-old and also wanting to encourage me to do some revision um, and and because I'd failed by then my GCEs and was going to retake them in the November. So when I said, oh, the teacher said Dylan Thomas lived in a place called Larn in Wales, is that near? And, and someone, I think we were in the pub, and someone in the pub said, yeah, you can get to it. It's around the corner from here. So I persuaded my mum and my auntie to take me to Larn. And I saw that writing shed. And as we, when we got there, one of the things that I remembered distinctly, there's a, a gun battery not far called Pendine Sands, and the guns were firing. And it, there was these great concussions um, sounding over the estuary. So this is called Visits to Larn at 15 and 50. 15. I came to Wales in a young pup body, chiming like the first peals of a valley chapel Sunday best bell, to the lyric school-learned lines of drunken Dylan, an unfathered son twisting down the ring-rhyming valleys to Carmarthen Bay, becalmed in an auntie's snug ferryside terrace. I asked to be sailed to Dylan's town to remedy the stretched-out teenage, bored boy, late-rising days and unsleeping, book-reading nights. Arriving to the thunderous drum of the Pendine guns, ominous like an impending front line, advancing on my stripling youth. In Larn was his writing shed, as he left it, the chair-hung coat, screwed-up lines, wrinkling dustily on a shabby rugged floor. I hungered to gather those flung-away leaves, to unfurl, to touch the dry bud of meaning, to harvest his sowing, be my ego's own poet. But the fleeting dabshine was snatched away in a wingbeat by the heron's priestly stab, my meagre lines cast at fast receding tides so that's the first part of the poem i looked in that writing shed and thought oh what a life and i think they'd bought me some kind of small biographical book about him i just thought whoa there was the, there was that little opening in my psyche that I think you have at that time of your life. And if you're lucky, you actually keep opening it and you see that there's something vocational, something of a calling, some archetypal 
uh, invitation to do something with your life. And I kind of heard that, but not I didn't take enough notice of it. And I think the concerns of, of my mum, she, when I was 17, she had a crashing breakdown and ended up in a mental hospital for four or five months. And I went into a, a sort of survival mode, which is, I think, where a lot of my anxiety comes from. I learnt that no one else was really going to look after me. I had to do it for myself. My auntie was there. She was a lot younger than my mum. But she was a young mum, and my grandma was there, but she was an older lady, and none of them really knew how to deal with this young lad. And so I, I, I got into this survival mode that said, just get through each day and make the most of that, and don't worry too much about what's going to happen in the future. And I stumbled through my life. And, and I did another year. I managed to pass the one GCSE out of about 10 in English literature because of Dylan, really. And then, for some unknown reason, the school decided it'd be a good idea if I did two or three more retakes of O-levels and a couple of A-levels. So I started doing English and politics. By the end of the, <laughs> the first year of that, the, the head of sixth form said... I think we'll better call it a day. In fact, on a school report that I hid under the carpet in my bedroom for years, my mum found it a long, a long time after, the English teacher had written in the, the, the large space for, for the um, assessment of my progress, it said Adrian Scott, and he had written who with a question mark because I never went. I wagged school, as they call it in Sheffield. I realised that if you turned up for registration in the morning, you could go and do what you want and no one really noticed. Um, so, yeah, I and then I got a job in a clothes shop because that was the only thing I was qualified for as a salesman. Um, and the whole idea of anything to do with writing poetry, I would write every so often when something bad happened and it was something I turned to. So it took until around 2011 2010 for me to think actually you know this writing thing i i'd like to have another go at that and i went back to larn when i was 50 and here's the next section of the poem <clears throat> 50 now, in my dog-eared years, signed up late for pen-to-paper shoveling, I returned to the scruffy bard's boathouse, his unchanging empty bottle shed and his scroungy debt-ridden paunch, sponging from any he could tap, yet singing in the cockle-cobbled streets the tom-tit tunes he milked from the wood. I hunch at his parlour, table drinking municipal tea the mock radio booming out his reading voice the sonorous swansea prophet soaring over the visitor's shortbread the next section 15 and 50 they say a glimmer in the teens can glisten at 50 so here in his house i turn the cog and whir of running verse winding again the spent spring of youth 
Then later on, standing high at the end of his birthday walk, staring back down age's track, all seasoned by Dylan's visceral candour and his October blood, so sharp and sheer, I can even see the shine in his white cross grave that has shone at me since my lamb-like days from an instamatic photo I took as a boy when death meant nothing. I'll just pause there. Dylan's grave is in this huge churchyard in Larn, full of great big gravestones, granite gravestones and sandstone. And then this one white cross that Dylan obviously requested, I presume. And and now Catelyn, his wife, is buried there too. And, and so on the front of it, it's just got his name and then on the back it's got her name when i visited it when i was 15 and i took i had a little instamatic camera that 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 my mum had given me for my birthday and i remember taking pictures and when i got back getting them developed and i had one of that little white grave that photo i took as a boy when death meant nothing So I go on. Catelyn is with him now, their drinking done, words all spent. Yet Dylan calls me again in graveyard rain to sound each sputtering slip or sprain, each kiss and whisper. Not in the high-flying swallowtail flights, but in the mole-blind hill-making soft-poured earth does the splendour shine, blithering through broken falls. In a beaten-down, cheap, mini-market town, I have seen hints in the lines on benches and signs how words wake the wounds and wonderful seams concealed in mines way below ground in the heart soil that only the grave-haunted brave with lamp-lit candle lives are able to burrow their seam-gleaning Grubbing the glinting flints. <clears throat> Had this idea. If you read Dylan Thomas's poetry, which I, I, I really encourage you to do, it, a lot of it's not easy reading. It's beautiful, and please read it out loud. Find a place where there's no one around and, and read it with all your body. Feel it in every part of you. Um, He's looking at all of these issues that, that, that are tempestuous and troublous. He looks at, at the prospect of it in his own day of nuclear holocaust. He looks at, at the, the natural world and, 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 and its, its power and how delicate it is and how much we have to care for it. He looked at... Um, at the movements of love and and jealousy and anger and 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 pain in our lives and as my lines say only the grave haunted brave with lamp lit candle lines are able to burrow their seam gleaning grubbing the glinting flints by going down into the dark that's what dylan seems to be able to do though the cost is very high in terms of his addictive personality and and 
<clears throat> his seeking to numb some of this with alcohol. But he is prepared to face the darkness. So this is the last part of the poem, Dylan's Grave. He was buried steadily before his death by the weight of his drunken, unfaithful sins. All that was left were his words and this white wooden cross, solitary in a grandeur of granite. But believe me, his faith in the summer of singing is richer by far than the cautious, you-ridden church that stoops over his grave with her half-grasp of the beast-bellied Christ. A faith I have found in the pilgrim tracks of each heart's foraging, to be sung at fifteen and fifty, that our wounds are our glories, and shall be rung with his great poet's bell at dawn and dusk. A faith I have found in the pilgrim tracks of each heart's foraging, to be sung at fifteen and fifty, that our wounds are our glories, and shall be rung with his great poet's bell at dawn and dusk. He somehow wrestled poetically and in his life with the dark forces that surround us. And there are plenty of his poems that are more accessible that you could go and read. Poem in October, Fern Hill, and Death Shall Have No Dominion, The Hand That Signed the Paper, um, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. These are all very famous poems of Dylan's. But I, I just want to look at one that isn't so often quoted because it's quite an odd poem in some ways. But I think uh, is is this this ability that I'm talking about in the poem that I wrote, um, the grave haunted braves way way below ground in the heart soil. Um, his lines are all over Larn on benches and on plaques. Um, lamp-lit candle lines um, and these deep seams of life. And this poem comes... He wrote a lot of his poems early on in his life, um, in his 20s. Quite extraordinary. He had a, a, a very powerful flowering of talent. This is called The Force That Threw the Green Fuse. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives my green age. That blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. And I am dumb to tell the crooked rose, my youth is bent by the same wintry fever. The force that drives the water through the rocks drives my red blood that dries the mouthing streams turns mine to wax and I am dumb to mouth unto my veins how at the mountain spring the same mouth sucks. The hand that whirls the water in the pool stirs the quicksand that ropes the blowing wind hauls my shroud sail and I am dumb to tell the hanging man how of my clay is made the hangman's lime. The lips of time leech to the fountainhead, love drips and gathers, but the fallen blood shall calm her sores. And I am dumb to tell a weather's wind how time has ticked to heaven round the stars. 
And I am dumb to tell the lover's tomb how at my sheet goes the same crooked worm. The words are are beautifully woven. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my green age. That blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. He is looking in this poem at that life force within us that in my experience of of mental health difficulties it, it somehow... Uh, anxiety is the fear of that force almost that he's talking about it's the it's the same green fuse that drives the flower that beautiful um limpid delicate tender beauty of the green leaves of spring it's the same force that that causes that callus on the leaf that ejects the leaf in autumn and makes it fall, that pulls the sap into the centre of the tree for another winter's wind and, and, and blow, and even more, blasts the roots of trees and is my destroyer. So he's seeing that in the green fuse that drives everything, it's also the thing that drives it towards its end, The hand that whirls the water in the pool stirs the quicksand that ropes the blowing wind hauls my shroud sail and I am dumb to tell the hanging man how of my clay is made the hangman's lime. That's where we're all going. And and a lot of my anxiety is around death. Um, And and why I say in my poem about the the church's half uh, half grasp of the beast-bellied Christ because... There's so much in Christianity that is positive, but it's too positive sometimes, and it doesn't want to really face up to the darkness inside us and 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 the mystery of death, the incomprehensibility of our end. The lips of time leech to the fountainhead, love drips and gathers. So love drips and gathers, so... There is all this love in the world, but the lips of time leach to the fountainhead. It's going to die. And he's trying to wrestle with that mysterious thing that my anxiety is often all about is, why am I here? What are we doing here? And, and why is it that the things we attach ourselves to form the, the drips and gatherings of love around then go? It's been a mystery to me all my life. And poetry seems the best in some ways, the best way. Imagery, symbolism, narrative, mythology, um, of, of trying to dance around and imbibe and eat and be made sick by the mystery of it all. And this lovely, I am dumb to tell a weather's wind how time has ticked to heaven round the stars. And I am dumb to tell the lover's tomb how at my sheet goes the same crooked worm. Love will end. How at my sheet goes the same crooked worm. And brilliantly, as he always is, 
and I am dumb. He says it one, two, three, four, five times in a poem that he is absolutely not dumb in. There is no dumbness in this poem. It's an elegy um, to the strangeness of life and death. So, and like I say, has this biblical quality um, that carries you deep into the mystery of things and doesn't solve it for you. It leaves you sitting there. Um, in the poem, And Death Shall Have No Dominion, uh, he talks about the heads of the characters hammer through daisies. You know, there's somehow this idea that, that as people die, something of their resurrection and their character comes through nature and you see the heads of the characters hammer through daisies. And he has these great um, uh, forms of poetry, the villanelle where there are lots of repeated lines and he loves to repeat a line and then to just fracture it and change it a little bit. Um, and, and this other poem that is another uh, incredible um wrestling with with what are we here for and the anxiety and the difficulty of that and he shrinks not a jot from looking at it it's called a refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in london so in some ways you could say dylan is a war poet uh, he writes about the second world war he didn't fight in it um but but he witnesses it and this is about the, the, the death of a child in the bombing uh, in the Blitz. And it takes me back to my own mother who lived through all this and my grandmother. Um, they, they were on Chapter Road in, in Wilsdon. Uh, the house next door to them was bombed. And, um, and so this, this is an elegy to them as much as anything for me. A refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in London. Never until the mankind making bird, beast and flower, fathering an all-humbling darkness, tells with silence the last light breaking and the still hour is come of the sea tumbling in harness. And I must enter again the round Zion of the water bead and the synagogue of the ear of corn. Shall I let pray the shadow of a sound or sow my salt seed in the least valley of sackcloth to mourn the majesty and burning of the child's death? I shall not murder the mankind of her going with a grave truth, nor blaspheme down the stations of the breath with any further elegy of innocence or youth. Deep with the first dead, lies London's daughter. Robed in the long friends, the grains beyond age, the dark veins of her mother, secret by the unmourning water of the riding Thames, after the first death, there is no other. After the first death, there is no other. Oh, it's a powerful piece. And there's, there's a, a whole arena of meditation in this, I must enter again the round Zion of the water bead and the synagogue of the ear of corn. Beautiful. 
I don't really know what any of that really means, but I kind of do. There's biblical language in there, the Zion of the water bead, somehow the the macro uh, of of Zion and all of that word encompasses of salvation um, in a water bead. And if you look at a water bead outside, it's a reflection of everything around it. Everything large is made smaller and visible. And the synagogue of the ear of corn, synagogue means to gather, gather to pray. The synagogue of the ear of corn, the praying uh, encapsulation of corn, which at its very core contains its own regenesis, its own resurrection, that unless a grain of wheat fall on the ground and dies, it will be staying a single grain. But if it dies, it becomes a whole field of wheat. And he says he won't, he won't mourn because the majesty and burning of this child's death is too much. The death of innocence is too much to deal with. The problem of evil, the, 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 the injury and harm of innocence, the death of innocence, is a challenge to any sense of faith. It's a challenge to all of us. What the hell are we doing here? What is life about? And yet, we expand ourselves to encompass the mystery of loss. And, and in that expansion is often the fracturing of our mental health and, and the, the, the tensions of the wounds that hit us in our lives break down our resilience and our sense of who we are and Jung had this amazing idea that actually these breakdowns were often breakthroughs that if if we can hold be held in those breakdowns in this majesty and burning of loss then we somehow enter through the dark synagogue of loss into this new understanding that our wounds are our glories. Dylan drank himself to death, unfortunately. He couldn't, he couldn't cope with um, what his talent had, had wrought in him. And he would go to America. They loved him there and they wanted him to do these great big long speaking tours. And he was a philanderer and, and had affairs. He had a tempestuous relationship with this Irish woman called Catelyn, um, who he loved fiercely and wrote the most beautiful love letters to. And she loved him but couldn't cope with him and they drank each other daft. Um, and it, it was all too much to wrestle with in so many ways but the fruit of his wrestling was his poetry and and i think that that did keep him sane uh the real tragedy was that he he was being treated by doctors and by the people around him to try and keep him upright to do these tours because they made a lot of money um and what he really should have been doing is staying at home in larn and just writing um, and 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 he, although he drank, he didn't drink to such excess in Lan. 
um, the final day of his life, he went into the White Horse pub. Apparently the last words he said were, that's 19 straight whiskies, I think that's a record. Um, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic to have lost someone with such elegiac, lyrical ability uh, at, at, at such a young age. Um, I think he testifies to how important it is for us to find outlets for the mysterious wrestling that goes on inside us about who we are and what our life speaks to us about. That sounds very uh, pious. I, I literally mean, and I hate that too, sorry, I mean, as you go through your everyday life, what are the things that if you pay a deep attention really speak to you? You know, the 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 natural world, the life that you lead has poetry in it and has meaning. And that's what he milked out, it seems to me. And that passage that I read at the beginning is the prologue to Under Milk Wood, which is a quirky play and a, an amazing piece of observation about human nature and a celebration of small town whales. But that opening soliloquy is, a, is one of the most extraordinary pieces of English language I've ever come across because he and he says you can see you with him have that if he was a film director you're looking down over the town and you swoop in to different vistas and panoramas and then you pan back and then you see each bedroom with the people sleeping in it and he says you can see the big seas of their dreams you can see the depth of their unconscious of, of, of the powerful movements that go on in all human lives and you can appreciate it because he's leading you through it and that's what we have to appreciate about ourselves the big seas of our own dreams and know that these, these movements are going on around us all the time so to finish this podcast I want to read um it's the prologue he wrote to his collected poems. Um, so it's one of the last things he wrote, as well as Underbelt Wood. And I just invite you to, to hear the words and to meditate on these words um, and to think about your own prologue that you might write to, to your collected works which may well be not poems, but children or partners or the work you do. This prologue is Dylan's. Prologue. This day winding down now at God-speeded summer's end, in the torrent salmon sun, in my sea-shaken house on a breakneck of rocks. Tangled with chirrup and fruit, froth, flute, fin and quill, at a woods dancing hoof, by scum's starfish sands, with their fishwife cross, gulls, pipers, cockles and sails, out there crow-black men, tackled with clouds who kneel to the sunset nets, 
geese nearly in heaven, boys, stabbing and herons and shells that speak seven seas, eternal waters away from the cities of nine days' night whose towers will catch in the religious wind. Like stalks of tall dry straw at poor peace I sing to you, strangers, Though song is a burning and crested act, the fire of birds in the world's turning wood from my sawn splay sounds. Out of these sea-thumbed leaves that will fall and fly like leaves of trees and as soon crumble and undie in the dog-dayed night, seaward the salmon sucks some slips and the Dumb swan's drub blue, my dabbed bay's dusk, as I hack this rumpus of shapes, for you to know how I, a spinning man, glory also this star, bird-roared, sea-born, man-torn, blood-blessed. Hark, I trumpet the place, from fish to jumping hill, look, I build my bellowing ark to the best of my love as the flood begins, out of the fountainhead of fear, rage red, man alive, molten and mountainous to stream over the wound asleep, sheep, white, hollow farms, to whales in my arms, who there in the castle keep, you king sing-song owls who moonbeam the flickering runs and dive the dingle-furred deer dead. Halloo on plumbed burns, on my ruffled ring dove in the hooting nearly dark, with Welsh and reverent rook, coo ruing the wood's praise, who moons her blue notes from her nest, down to the curl you heard. Ho, hullabalooing clan, agape with woe in your beaks on the gabbing capes. Hey, on horseback hill, jack-whisking hare, who hears there this fox-light, my flood ship, clangor as I hew and smite, a clash of ambles from my hubbub and fiddle, this tune on a tongued puffball, but animals thick as thieves on God's rough tumbling grounds, hail to his beasthood. Beasts who sleep good and thin, hissed in hogsback woods. The haystacked hollow farms in a throng of waters cluck and cling, and barn roofs cockcrow war. O kingdom of neighbours, finned, felled and quilled, flash to my patch, work ark and the moonshine drinking Noah of the bay. With pelt and scale and fleece, only the drowned deep bells of sheep and churches noise, poor peace as the sun sets, and dark shoals every holy field. We shall ride out alone, and then, under the stars of Wales, cry multitudes of arcs. Across the water-lidded lands, manned with their loves they'll move, like wooden islands hill to hill, Halloo, my proud dove with a flute. Ahoy, old sea-legged fox, tom-tit and die-mouse. My ark sings in the sun at God-speeded summer's end and the flood flowers now. Thanks to Dylan, who Bob Dylan named himself after. Thanks for listening. I hope that in some way this meandering lyrical torrent through Dylan gives you some sense of both the awkward, painful gestations of life suffering and also 
the glorious momentary triumphing bellows of bright, gorgeous poetry. Thank you.